0: I'm Susie Ferguson, and you're listening to the Ottoman History Podcast. Early in the morning on July 11th, 1882, British ships massed in the harbor outside the bustling port of Alexandria, Egypt. The bombardment lasted 10 hours, sparking fires and reducing whole quarters of the city to rubble. But bombardment by other means continued for decades to come. It took the form of seemingly neutral instruments of governance and finance, local councils, credit, banking, and bonds. In this episode, we speak with Aaron Jakes, assistant professor of history at the New School, about how the story of global capitalism and local governance can shed new light, not only on colonialism in Egypt, but also on the very terms by which nationalists could challenge British rule. We'll talk about the meaning of what Aaron calls colonial economism, the roles of spies, bankers, and peasant farmers, and the place of a 1906 earthquake in far-off San Francisco, in forging Egypt's occupation. Our story begins many years before the British occupation. The ruling dynasty, founded by Ottoman Viceroy Mehmed Ali in 1805, began to borrow heavily from European banks to expand the country's infrastructure and its army. They did so on the back of Egypt's cotton crop, which became extremely valuable as cotton stopped coming from the American South during the Civil War of 1861-65. to Once the Civil War was over, the Egyptian government couldn't keep pace with its debt, given the lower price of cotton
1: by 1876 the egyptian uh, state has basically defaulted on those loans Um, and so then there's this uh, six-year period of foreign financial control uh in which the representatives of the major bondholders of the egyptian debt uh basically seize control of the finances of the egyptian state and impose what we would now call austerity measures and there's actually been some interesting work um by jamie martin and others to think about um Egypt as a kind of um, founding instance of austerity politics. And those policies are immensely unpopular in Egypt then, as they are in many parts of the world today. And the result of this is the uprising that gets called the Arabi uh, revolt. And so the British use the revolt as a as a pretext to invade the country. Uh, And at that point, they have to explain both how it is that this massive, fairly broad based insurgency demanding both. Uh, kind of restoration of fiscal sovereignty and constitutional rule has come about, why, in fact, British rule or control over the country is the appropriate response to it, and what has gone wrong economically. And their answer to that question provides the basis both for the set of economic policies uh, that they undertake and for a set of kind of operative theories about what politics can and can't look like in a place like Egypt.
0: The British, in other words, had established themselves by force as an occupying power. But they set out to explain to Egyptians and others why it was that their rule made sense. They did that through a logic that Aaron calls colonial economism.
1: Most simply what I mean by colonial economism uh, is that this is the name I give to the kind of organizing discourse that pervades the writings, statements, and policy decisions of the occupation through at least its first three decades. And we can talk in a a little while about uh, how it starts to unravel. And the core premise of this is that Egyptians as racially distinctive human subjects are capable of no more and no less than a bare recognition of their own basic material interests. Now, um, these ideas are articulated in kind of uh, granular form in the earliest years of the occupation. So right after the British have invaded the country, they send this mission under the British diplomat, uh, Lord Dufferin, to conduct an investigation. And what's striking about uh, Dufferin's report is that already there, you have an explanation of what's happening that sees this orientation towards self-interest, both as the basis for an indictment of the despotism of the Khedivs. So government has failed. Bankruptcy is the kind of logical economic consequence or symptom of despotism because government is being employed and organized around selfish ends. But it also becomes the basis of the optimistic story that the British are able to tell about what they can accomplish. The idea there is that in fact, the uh, the peasant majority of Egypt in its orientation or their orientation toward economic interest is capable of seizing upon many of the basic features, transactions, institutions of modern commercial society toward much more productive ends than they have been allowed to do by the rapacious, despotic uh, Khedivial rulers of Egypt who have basically thwarted their productive potential. And so the idea there is that by Uh, evening flows of water, by extending uniform legal protections across the country, um, by extending new forms of credit, which we'll surely talk about more in a bit, uh, that peasants will actually be able to kind of realize their innate potential as productive, improving agrarian capitalists. And on this basis, uh, British rule will actually assume the form of a kind of symbiotic relationship between the real majority of Egypt Uh, and the interests of the bondholders, because things will be so productive that everyone will be better off.
0: So let's just pause for a second to get this straight. The British are claiming, in short, that their occupation of Egypt is for the good of the Egyptian peasant farmers and smallholders, who have been unjustly oppressed by self-serving elites, in other words, the Khedives. What's more, with the coming of a cadre of enlightened, rational British policymakers, Egypt can become more productive and fertile than ever before benefiting its inhabitants as well as, not by accident, its foreign bondholders and those who would like to get in on the game. This has major implications not only for the country's economy, but for a question Aaron raised earlier. What can politics look like in Egypt?
1: There's a kind of logical problem of a regime that has arrived under a kind of social breakdown resulting from austerity that needs to generate more revenue in order to regularize debt payments and has condemned the rapaciousness of the regime that it's replacing. And so the idea there is that if the kind of net productivity of the country can be increased to such an extreme degree, then you can pay off the bondholders and actually the country will nevertheless experience British rule as as a moment of unprecedented economic prosperity. The other implication of this, uh, and and this in fact is uh, the sort of reason I originally chose to think about this in terms of the category economism, is that they understand there to be political implications to this as well. So the other idea is that most Egyptians really only care about their material interests uh, and that basically what has been misdescribed and misconstrued as politics in the form of the Arabi revolt or various other expressions of resistance to foreign powers and foreign rules will actually recede in inverse proportion to the economic benefit that British rule is able to bestow upon the country. So the, the idea basically is peasants only really care about money. The more money there's in their pockets, the happier they'll be. And then what what looks like politics but really isn't will disappear uh, and you'll just have economic growth and stability.
0: So we've heard how the British came to occupy Egypt, and we've discussed the story they told about what they were doing there, that they were there to make everything work better than the Khedivs had done, and that Egyptians, who cared only about the contents of their pockets, would thank them. As Aaron has described, this was a profoundly anti-political ideology. British development, in other words, was intended to eliminate the only drivers the British assumed could lie behind Egyptian political action, material want. To understand how politics would or wouldn't work though, we need to understand a little bit more about what power looked like under the occupation. How did governance actually work in Egypt under the British? Who wielded what kind of power and how?
1: One of the things I realized when I finished the book is that that the answer to this question is in, in many ways um, one of the things that I care most about in terms of the implications of the research, and I'm not sure that that's entirely apparent uh, in the way that the book was ultimately written. Uh, initially, the operations of British power in the country are lumpy and weird. They arrive, they claim that they are going to leave in place. Uh, I mean, first of all, Egypt uh, remains a part of the Ottoman Empire, at least formally. This means that the Khedive, the Ottoman uh, Viceroy, continues ostensibly to govern the country uh, with the assistance of his, uh, his council of ministers. And so technically uh, the British uh, are providing advice with an expanded staff uh, in the British consulate in in Cairo, and those the staff are are kind of led and coordinated by uh, Lord Cromer, this uh, kind of arch-colonial administrator of the late 19th century. In 1883, Dufferin arrives to conduct uh, the mission, and um, he also uh, implements a set or proposes a set of political reforms that are implemented under a new basic law in 1883. And this leads to the creation of a set of new institutions. So these include uh, provincial councils in each of the mudriyet, uh, something called the Consultative Council of Legislation, which contained both elected members and government appointees and would offer non-binding advisory decisions about uh, new pieces of legislation. And then there's a general assembly which uh, convenes on an irregular basis, but has binding authority over laws pertaining to taxation of Egyptian subjects. Those are the kind of uh, big institutions, um, and they exercise varying degrees of importance at different moments. Um, The British initially only attach advisors to a few key ministries. So at the beginning, they're really only interested in public works and finance because they want to get their economic development program going. And by the 1890s, this starts to change. And this is where um, what I regard as some of the most lasting, consequential, and pernicious uh, effects of British rule uh, really take place. So in the end of 1894, Uh, the British move to place an advisor, uh, his name is Sir Eldon Gorst, uh, in the Ministry of the Interior. And they're interested in doing this because they have started to understand both that they require the executive functions of the provincial administration and the police, uh, which the Ministry of Interior controls in order to implement all of the new plans and programs that they're busy drafting, and because they understand or have started to understand that there exist residual forms of more local political procedures that had been um, either evolved kind of through a long history of customary practice or in some cases institutionalized uh, under the Khedivs, particularly in the 1860s, and that this leaves a a danger um, that they actually see increasing of uh, a politicization of the administrative apparatus of the state as a kind of locus of opposition to the British uh, in ways that they want to shut down very, very quickly. And so early in 1895, they impose a set of reforms that abolish local elections uh, at the village level for the village headmen, the Ahmed and, and Uh, And they actually do the same thing for uh, trade guilds that had had a a similar system of um, local elections. And that basically ends up meaning that subnational levels of government uh, in Egypt really to this day uh, have very weak or almost non-existent forms of electoral procedural um, politics. Um,
0: So here we begin to arrive at the heart of the matter. Dufferin and Cromer represented two very different visions of colonial rule. In 1882, Dufferin began to put in place new forms of political representation for Egyptians, right down to the village level. By 1894, however, Lord Cromer was in charge, and the British had decided that village politics for Egyptians were not a good idea. They wanted no part of such a system, and they would work actively to prevent it. It sounds like they did almost a complete 180. What this suggests is that it was not a foregone conclusion that a colonial power would repress rather than, say, co-opt electoral politics. But by the 1890s, the die was cast and British colonial government was not going to promote representative politics among Egyptians. In fact, they would do quite the opposite. What is it that changed over those 14 years? How did we get from Dufferin and village elections to Cromer and the Ministry of Interior?
1: There are a couple of different ways of coming at this. Um, one of them historically is uh, that when the British arrive, uh, the the Khedive at the time, Taufit, is the, the person that they have helped to install as a pliant figurehead uh, during the turmoil uh, of the late 1870s. Um, and they have a much easier time dealing with the government when he is alive. He dies in 1892. His adolescent son, Abbas Hilmi II, takes over uh, and is much more keen uh, from that early moment to push back in a variety of ways. And so part of the, the immediate impetus in the 1890s to make these moves on the provincial administration is that they they see n- new sites of opposition uh, opening up uh, with support from the palace. So, so there's a, a historical set of changes that are taking place. There's also an important ideological difference um, between Cromer and Dufferin that um, maps onto some larger debates that are playing out across the British Empire at the time. So Dufferin, at least in this sense, is more in line with an older tradition of colonial liberalism that actually sees as the responsibility of colonial rule, a pedagogical project um, that uh, will train up colonized populations toward uh, a horizon of forms of representative self-governance that look something like the way they imagine representative self-governance t- to exist in England. And Dufferin is relatively optimistic about the possibility that these uh, existing forms of village politics and village elections can become uh, what he calls is, uh, the roots out of which uh, the, the kind of bigger, healthier plants of representative institutions will grow. Cromer absolutely uh, rejects this notion, uh, thinks that it is absurd, uh, and is much more pessimistic about the prospects for a kind of liberal reformist project. Um, he adheres to a, a kind of much harder racial theory of of difference uh, and is therefore deeply skeptical about the idea that Egyptian peasants will, on any reasonable time horizon be capable of making the kinds of decisions that would qualify them for involvement in political institutions. And so he objects in writing to to the uh, proposals that Dufferin is making, uh, and then uh, follows through on those objections.
0: I'm Susie Ferguson, and you're listening to the Ottoman History Podcast. Today we're talking to Aaron Jakes about the period of Egypt's occupation between 1882 and 1919. We've learned a bit about the British occupation of Egypt and the logic of colonial economism that guided the first three decades of their rule. In the second part of this podcast, we'll look in more detail at how exactly colonial economism changed things for Egyptians. One of the things this logic enabled was the putting in place of entirely new networks of credit and debt. The occupation as Aaron reminds us coincided with the dawn of what we might think of as an early expansion of global finance.
1: Part of what's going on in the moment when the British arrive uh, in Egypt is a set of pretty dramatic transformations in um, how capital is moving around the world Um, and this is partly a result of uh, what's sometimes described as the first great depression which is caused, at least in large part, by the overwhelming success of the model of industrialization that the British had pursued. So the rest of the world starts to look at the factories of Lancashire uh, and attempts to to replicate them. And by the late 19th century, uh, you have industrialization all over the place, leading to declining profitability in industrial sectors. And, And one major result of this is a kind of mass redirection of capital into banking sectors all across Europe so that it can be um, reallocated to other parts of the world uh, with the assistance of new kinds of financial networks with the idea that money will then travel to places where it's going to gain higher yields. Now, um, Egypt becomes a major target for uh, this kind of investment. In aggregate terms, relative to what's going on on a world scale, it's a bit player. The United States is by far the largest recipient of these capital transfers. Places like Argentina uh, are are much more significant uh, as targets for quantities of capital. But Egypt becomes this important laboratory for a set of experiments. And what's unusual here um, is the idea that rather than investing simply in things like railways and the built environment of cities and telegraph lines, uh, that this kind of foreign capital can be invested in the colonies in forms of lending directly to colonial subjects themselves. Uh, and that idea is the object of immense heated debate among colonial administrators, political economists, political theorists, uh, journalists, lots of other people all over the world in the late 19th century. And so Cromer basically decides, uh, with support from a bunch of other people, uh, to make Egypt the laboratory for a series of experiments, the premise of which is that given access to larger quantities of uh, credit with the assistance of these new European-backed banking institutions, smallholders will take these loans that they receive and use them productively as farm capital rather than squander them on weddings for their children or buying jewelry or burying them in the ground or whatever other ridiculous things colonial administrators like to claim that they'll do with them. Um, And in order to make that happen, um, they actually need to provide some additional incentives for foreign investors to channel their money into these kinds of institutions. And so um, the, the kind of foremost institution of this experiment, the Agricultural Bank of Egypt, enjoys a couple of special concessions from the Egyptian government. So first of all, it can use the government's tax collectors to service its loans. So, this means that the bank doesn't need to bear the cost of uh, building and staffing branches all across the countryside, which would be incredibly costly. And uh, the returns on the money that is invested in that bank are guaranteed by the Egyptian government itself. So, whether it profits or not, the holders of uh, shares and bonds in this bank will receive at least a minimum return, which is initially pegged at three and a half percent and it fluctuates a little bit. But the idea uh, is that there's a kind of enhancement of the credit that they are extending to to the company that is backed by uh, the Egyptian government.
0: In other words, this was a system of credit that locked in both the Egyptian government, which had guaranteed foreign investors a set rate of interest, and the peasantry, whose loans were policed by government tax collectors. If you're listening closely, what's coming next won't surprise you. All of this newly available credit was supposed to benefit Egyptian smallholders. In reality, it would bring on a very different set of effects.
1: Part of the idea is that an institution like this is going to create some sort of glorious symbiosis between smallholders specifically, right? So that this bank is set up specifically to make loans to farmers who own small properties of about five acres or less right, so that the symbiosis is supposed to exist between European finance and those smallholders. And the uh, broader set of uh, reforms or policies that the British are putting in place do prove overwhelmingly attractive to European financial investors. And this is partly because in order to conduct these experiments, they need to generate masses of new data about the value of land, about rates of indebtedness, about who is borrowing what kinds of money where, um, and all of that data becomes publicly available in ways that begins to allow bankers and investors all across Europe to compare the banking situation in Egypt to the banking situations in other places. It also means that there are actually people that are in the business of collecting this data who can then go to work for those banks. So there's an incredible uh, kind of movement of British staff onto the boards and staffs of various new banks and companies that are are set up. And, and the result of this is that although the British claim that all the things that they're doing are going to cause foreign capital to flow overwhelmingly to the benefit of smallholders, that when that wave of capital arrives, it actually ends up flowing overwhelmingly to the class of landowners and uh, property holders who are already the wealthiest and most powerful people in the country. Uh, And basically the credit market has its own class logics, which are radically amplified by this influx of foreign investment. And, And the fact that the agricultural bank has these special concessions from the government has the kind of perverse consequence of meaning that no other bank is willing to make loans to the poorest landowners in the country because they will be doing so at a disadvantage because they do not enjoy the same concessions that the Agricultural Bank does.
0: One of the classic stories told about British colonial Egypt is that the British, every bit as venal and self-interested as they accused the Khedives of being, got in bed with the country's large landholders who helped them to rule by proxy and on the cheap. One word historians have used for those elites is comprador, a person who helps a foreign government exploit the local population. What we're hearing here puts this kind of critique in the context of a broader and more terrifying story, showing how both British officials and Egyptian elites were part of a credit market that amplified existing inequalities in many places across the globe. This means we may need to think a bit differently about the relationships between colonialism and capitalism.
1: One of the peculiarities of the way a lot of histories of colonialism uh, are written is that they, they must recognize and do in various ways that there is some kind of um, deep connection between the structures and practices of colonial rule and the interests of capital in the colonizing country, right? Even for people who are totally uninterested in political economy, this is a kind of axiom of almost all ways of thinking about colonialism. Now, the peculiarity of that is that for both the champions and critics of capitalism one of its most distinctive features is its wild dynamism whether one thinks that that wild dynamism you know is expressed in terms of the wonderful flexibility of productive capacity and the kinds of creativity that are generated and the wonderful new ipods and products of all kinds that appear so rapidly Uh, or in a more negative register uh, in its crisis tendencies and the forms of social upheaval that are uh, generated. Um, But what's odd, and and I think Egypt, because of the importance of cotton in particular, has been a locus for a kind of extreme version of this, uh, is that while emphasizing the importance of capitalism to the existence and practices of colonial rule, the understanding of what capitalism under colonial rule looks like is not at all dynamic, is in fact overwhelmingly static. So the the other thing that is kind of um, central to the narratives or most of the narratives that we have is an argument that there are these kind of deep, stable continuities of what capitalism in Egypt looks like. So they start growing cotton in the 19th century, they're growing more cotton under the British at the end of the 19th century, they're growing even more cotton in the early decades of the 20th century. uh, And then it's really only in the 1950s that things begin to change. And so one of the things that I'm interested in doing here uh, is both suggesting that we can adopt a more reflexive practice of writing history um, that kind of owns the fact that we may be able to see different things in this past now because of the peculiarities of the moment that we are living through, and that actually takes seriously the dynamism for better and for worse of uh, what capitalism actually looks like on the ground. And once one starts to do that, it becomes possible to start asking different kinds of questions about the problems that people living in Egypt were actually grappling with and trying to address whatever political positions they were adopting. And so we actually need a different understanding of the world that all of these actors inhabited, in order to make sense of the kinds of arguments that they were making and the things that they were doing.
0: So, we've talked about how the British understood their occupation of Egypt, and we've explored some of the changes that colonial economism wrought on the ground as new global flows of credit and debt enriched landowners and impoverished peasants while claiming to uplift them. But it's critical to see that scholars in the present are not the only analysts of these massive transformations. Egyptians, too, understood and contested the processes shaping their worlds. It's by looking at how they did so that we can start to see a new history of Egyptian nationalism, one that recognizes what Aaron has called the wild dynamism of capitalism, without reducing the history of political thought to an economistic story of hardship and need.
1: First of all, I should just say, right, Partly out of gratitude for the the archives in which I got to work, that um, this is research that um, draws on a collection of sources that are housed uh, in the Durham University Library in the collections uh, that were deposited there by the family of a Abasimy II. Um, there's an older story about the origins of what becomes the nationalist movement by the 1900s that locates. The Khedive himself at the center of that story, and basically suggests that at the age of seventeen, when he comes to power, uh, he immediately starts to mobilize this movement and fund all of these new activities, and and this is a version of things that actually serves the interests and narratives of the British quite well. So Cromer is immensely fond of suggesting that Abbas Hilmi is the string puller who's simply manipulating the credulous masses and groups of other people around him. What I found when I started working in this archive at Durham is that there's something more complicated going on. And so in the mid 1890s, as the British are beginning much more aggressively to consolidate their control over the remaining ministries and particularly over the Ministry of the Interior, you have a group of men, and they are all men in this case, um, who uh, have overwhelmingly served in various capacities in the Egyptian state, are in various ways, deeply invested in the project of state building that they understand the Muhammad Ali dynasty to have been engaged in, uh, and are profoundly alarmed by what they see happening and, and outraged by it.
0: One such figure was an employee of the Ministry of Interior named Shimi Bey, who Aaron calls the spymaster.
1: This man, Shimi Bey, who is at the time working in the infractions office of the Ministry of the Interior in Cairo, so he is himself a government employee, but also working in the employee of the palace, begins on the Khedib's behalf to start organizing a network of spies who are working not for the Egyptian government, but at the behest of the palace it sp- itself. In fact, to spy on government officials and uh, on the British as well and figure out what they're doing. And part of this project, as I understand it, is in fact aimed at trying to cultivate the young Khedive as an ally of opposition to the British. And so Shimi Bey gathers about him uh, with money from the palace a team of other spies who are traveling around the countryside. Sometimes they're traveling around major cities, monitoring mostly the behaviors and practices of, of government officials at all levels and trying to make sense of what's happening. And they, uh, through their reports, which are then curated and kind of sent to the Khadiv, uh, are producing a set of quite uh, rich and vivid and often very lurid narratives about what British rule actually looks like. And the argument that they are making is is in effect that uh, the Khedive's family and his forebears and and men like these spies have been working to build a state that is just, upright, modernizing, in fact, Uh, and directed toward the right kinds of ends, and that what the British are doing is both allowing the wrong sorts of people uh, to assume positions of power and then uh, violently distorting the institutions of the state, ironically, toward uh, venal and perverse personal ends. And so Uh, The stories that they tell are overwhelmingly about people getting drunk, extreme forms of sexual violence uh, with a rapidity that is deeply alarming, lots of gambling, taking bribes, corruption, uh, mismanagement of of various routine tasks.
0: It might be helpful to remember here from earlier in the podcast that the very argument that the British were making about the legitimacy of their rule was developed around the idea that they were going to govern better than the Khedibs. And that their enlightened leadership was going to benefit Egyptians. Men like Shimi Bey, in other words, were very early documenting the ways in which none of this was the case. Men like Shimi Bey and his colleagues would form a key part of Egypt's emerging nationalist movement.
1: That group basically sort of forms one kernel out of which. What by the early 1900s has started to call itself the Hasbun Waltony, the the National Party, and they are also involved in funding, supporting, and transmitting information to the newspapers that present themselves as both allied with the palace and opposed to the British uh, in the
0: 1890s. What's amazing about this story is not only how Shimi Bey and his colleagues turned the logic of the occupation on its head showing how the British failed to provide the good governance they promised, and in fact displayed all of the bad behaviors they had attributed to the khadifs These early employees and critics of the colonial state did more than that. They also articulated other kinds of critique that would expand the rhetorical possibilities of the nationalist movement in the early 20th century. In other words, this was a critique of colonialism by a colonized population, who both contested and exceeded the terms the colonizers had set.
1: There was immense, remarkable consistency in the kinds of statements that the British were making publicly about Egyptian society, both to publics abroad in Europe and to Egyptians themselves. And the people that are responding to those statements are very well aware of them. They are aware that the British both claim be delivering new forms of prosperity to the country and claim that Egyptians will be grateful and pleased and quiescent as a result of that prosperity. And so um, in the case of the spies, uh, they begin to describe this discourse as a distortion of the norms of good government. Part of the idea there is that. Uh, It may be that governments are in the business of promoting economic development, but this should never be the sole end of what government does. And so there are these really poignant moments in in some of the spy reports where uh, they are reflecting on the idea that all social transactions of all kinds have basically been reduced to the act of making money. In one instance, there's one of these spies who actually has an incredibly sophisticated understanding of cotton markets, of the kinds of economic and social transformations that are ensuing from British policy. Um, and so in in one letter to Shimi Bay, uh, in basically two two pages, develops the outlines of, of what looks like a dependency theory account of the consequences of British rule. Um, but he then goes on to say... You know the crazy thing about this is that we're living in a society where suddenly uh, Hafiz al Quran uh, is is uh, going about reciting uh, the Quran simply uh, because this is a way of uh, making a living, and and he also suggests that this this means that people are being pitted against each other in ways that are uh, are novel that they basically start to see each other as uh, objects of material ends in ways that. Uh, offend against other um, norms of how a society is supposed to be put together and, and what government is supposed to be doing.
0: It was not only Egyptian bureaucrats within the colonial state, however, who recognized and critiqued the economism that defined the occupation. A related set of arguments could be found in peasant petitions from the Egyptian countryside.
1: One has the sense that people in positions of relative disadvantage are aware that the pieces don't fit together, and their possibilities for addressing various forms of what they understand to be injustice and inequity are actually increased by the messiness of the state because it means that there may be a multitude of routes that they can uh, they can travel to to seek redress. And so, Prior to the 1890s, there are a variety of these possible routes. They can stage revolts, they can flee from their farms, they can use to some extent these practices of village elections, and they can petition the Khadiv. One of the things that starts to happen as a result of the kinds of administrative reforms that the British uh, impose is a kind of radical compression of those options. and so. What starts to happen in the petitions uh, that I was reading from the very end of the 19th century is that you start to see, uh, on the one hand, again, incredibly thoughtful, evocative accounts of uh, a whole array of problems that are being unleashed by the changes that are imposed under the occupation. And one should admit that that the petitions are not necessarily, or in most cases, are not being written by the complainants themselves, but usually by an a person whose job it is to write uh, petitions. Um, uh, so on the one hand, these remain an incredibly rich resource just for getting a sense for the textures of, of everyday life, but they are also describing a set of changes to how government works. And so often what you'll see is that they are petitioning some higher level of government to seek redress against forms of injustice and abuse at the village level. And they can no longer circumvent the village headmen um, because the administrative hierarchies have been so thoroughly streamlined that everything ends up returning to that person. And so there's an enormous body of petitions in the Egyptian National Archives describing the kind of limitless diversity of abuses to which ordinary people were subjected under forms of local government that were in fact less and less accountable to anyone, although the British were claiming that they were being professionalized by by being insulated from the kind of political whims of the village community.
0: The peasants and government employees like Shimi Bei who documented and contested the logic of the occupation, were joined by intellectuals and writers in the Arabic press. Many histories of nationalism focus on this group, sometimes at the expense of the others we've discussed, who critiqued colonial economism. It is true, however, that these writers and intellectuals left behind them a rich record of their arguments. By looking closely at their work, we can start to see a new set of driving forces behind Egyptian nationalism, the questions raised by a globalized financialized economy. Those questions looked very different before and after the financial crisis of 1907. Before 1907, it was hard to critique the British on economic grounds. It looked in some ways as if they were doing an okay job.
1: It actually seems for a while like the things that the British claim they are doing are working, and so the country is going through a period of what at least appears to some people to be an era of unprecedented prosperity. It becomes um, a kind of global model for a new progressive kind of colonial rule that various other regimes around the world are paying attention to. And so this means that critics of British rule, on the one hand, are aware of the claims that the British are making about Egypt, and they are also aware of the fact that those claims have a kind of um, plausibility that is deeply threatening to anyone who is interested in ending the era of British rule. And so um, what I see as the sort of central animating preoccupation of this cohort of journalists and self-styled opponents to, to British rule in the early 1900s is an effort to articulate a critique of British rule that deals with the fact that the country appears to be economically prosperous. Um, And broadly speaking, heuristically, this assumes two forms. So on the one hand, um, you have people who are making a variety of arguments about how government and politics cannot and should not ever be reduced simply to a kind of bare calculus of economic growth and material interests. Uh, They are, for example, very interested in questions about education and why the prosperity of the country is not being invested in other forms of social improvement. Um, The other trajectory of critique is a kind of critical political economy, which has been largely ignored in prior studies of the Arabic press and is really both pervasive and in many cases stunning in its sophistication uh, and creativity. And so... Here you have a set of concerns about the unevenness of the new kinds of financial wealth that are being uh, created. You have concerns about the forms of social upheaval that are being generated, uh, and questions about how uh, these new financial institutions actually relate to other kinds of economic practice. So there there's a already by the early 1900s, a set of concerns about whether, forms of financial investment will, in fact, translate into higher levels of agricultural productivity or not. And many of those people uh, also start to warn that it looks like these financial institutions are uh, incredibly unstable, and they, in some cases, accurately predict that there will at some point be a massive crisis, which does happen in 1907. In
0: 1907, Egypt suffered a massive financial collapse, changing the terrain of critique for those who opposed the British occupation. But putting this event, a global crisis in financial markets, at the center of the story of how Egyptian nationalism developed, threatens to replicate the very kind of economistic argument that has featured so far in our story as a tool of British imperialism.
1: Given that the object of my critique in the book is what I am calling colonial economism, which is a discourse that uh, overwhelmingly reads political action as Uh, a kind of mechanistic effect of economic phenomena, there is a real danger in placing a massive financial crisis at the kind of center of the narrative. And so uh, the onus analytically here is to explain how the crisis is important in terms that do not replicate that kind of economistic logic.
0: If you're like me, you might not quite know how we get from general prosperity to global financial collapse. So here's the story of what happened in 1907. What's worth thinking about here is that this was not a story unique to Egypt, but rather a crisis that traveled through networks of investment and debt and touched many places around the world. This was something that would not be lost on Egyptians.
1: So briefly what happens is that there is this world-spanning pattern of uh, financial investment, um, which in Egypt, and in lots of other places including the United States becomes increasingly speculative, increasingly leveraged in the sense that you have financial instruments that uh, rely on regular supplies of low interest credit being channeled into investments in uh, other forms of credit. So you have kind of layers of debt that are all reliant on the continuous flow of credit at lower levels. Um, and all of that is thrown out of whack Uh, starting at the end of 1906, partly because of the um, San Francisco earthquake, uh, which causes massive transfers of gold from Britain to the United States to pay out uh, fire insurance policies, and partly actually because Egypt has its most valuable cotton crop until that point uh, in 1906. And so basically, uh, in the face of this new strain on their gold supplies, Uh, First, the Bank of England and then uh, central banks in or they're not central banks, but the the banks that serve the late 19th century equivalent role of central banks uh, raise their benchmark interest rates uh, in ways that that throw uh, all of these other financial instruments out of calibration. Uh, And that leads in Egypt and in the United States and in a variety of other places to Uh, the rapid devaluation of a whole variety of other financial assets. So in the case of Egypt, um, there have been forms of bank lending against stock certificates that both rely on the idea that the value of those stock certificates will continue to increase, and because the stock certificates become useful objects as mechanisms for borrowing, inflates the value of those stocks. And so suddenly, The stock market crashes, initially the British claim that this is only going to be a problem for people who are engaged in stock market speculation, um, but it quickly throws uh, the entire credit system of the country out of whack uh, and means most crucially that farmers who rely on forms of credit to be able in many cases to stay alive throughout uh, the period of the year where what little money they have is in the ground in the form of their cotton crops, uh, suddenly cannot borrow in the ways that they had been beforehand. And so um, for quite a while, uh, the British are basically insisting that uh, that this is not a crisis, that it is just a, a stock market crash, that it has had no serious effect on the underlying uh, economic condition of the country, and that the peasantry in particular is okay. Um, and that turns out not to be the case. So by Uh, 1910, they are forced to admit that there has been a massive wave of uh, peasant defaults all across the countryside. There are rising rates of unemployment, wages are falling. uh, And then there are all sorts of uh, more complicated knock-on effects that I, I won't get into.
0: The effects of the financial crisis in Egypt were not simply economic. The crisis also galvanized new forms of political critique.
1: This does, first of all, make possible a kind of Um, rapid redeployment of the occupation's own economistic discourse against it. So in the face of the crisis, it becomes possible for critics of British rule to say, you have claimed that uh, economic growth or economic development will be the kind of central criterion by which we should judge your presence in the country. Well, now things are not going very well. So what do you want to do with that? Um, But they also start to um, pay attention to the fact that the crisis makes it possible to think about Egypt uh, in relation to a very different global geography than uh, was typical of other forms of comparativism that were operative at the time. So uh, in this regard, the reason why I've mentioned several times that the United States is, is going through something similar is that people in Egypt start to notice that as well. And the fact that they see that there are other places that are dealing with similar kinds of problems becomes a way of actually um, clarifying and specifying what exactly it is that's peculiar about and wrong with being governed by the British under these conditions. And so they, uh, they begin to see that states and other places faced with crises of this of this, this kind Uh, are willing to undertake forms of intervention on behalf of the welfare of the populations that they govern uh, that the British are not willing to undertake. That then makes it possible to start thinking through a set of um, deeper and slightly more abstract uh, arguments about what's wrong with colonial economism as a way of thinking about the relationship between the economic and the political. So once you notice that states governed differently elsewhere are able and willing to intervene in economic life in different ways it becomes easier to say that uh, the british have been insisting on a kind of either separation between or, or unidirectional uh, unidirectional causal relationship between the economic and the political which is profoundly ideological and in fact profoundly misleading and so um, they begin to insist that in fact the economic and the political are always deeply intertwined. Now, this also finally uh, introduces some serious complications into the question of what it is that uh, a movement against British rule needs to do and think about and accomplish. Because on the one hand, the crisis makes it possible to say, no, in fact, you have not made our country better off. You have introduced these forms of financial investment that are wildly volatile that have exposed people's livelihoods to uh, forms of hazard that are utterly without precedent, and this is turning out to be a disaster. Um, So you have a new normative basis to make an argument for political independence, um, but they are also aware of the fact that uh, at this point, if you were to substitute Egyptians for all the British officials that are sitting in positions in the Egyptian government, that would not on its own uh, end the crisis or make the country any less vulnerable. That, that basically colonial rule uh, or British rule has introduced a set of institutions uh, that generate social practices that can't easily be uh, reversed. And so it's in this moment that they begin really to think about the fact that the independence that they are advocating for has to be more than political uh, and involve some sort of deep rethinking of and re engineering of the relationship between economic and political practices.
0: Within about a decade, these Egyptian advocates for independence would get their opportunity to see how politics and government could be imagined differently. In 1919, Egyptians took to the streets to demand their independence from Britain. This moment, the 1919 revolution, is often seen as the birth of mass politics and modern representative democracy in Egypt. What we've learned so far in this episode should change the way we understand 1919.
1: There has been a recent trend in uh, writing about 1919 that tries to draw a hard distinction between a, a kind of subaltern insurgency uh, particularly as it manifests in the countryside, um, that is regarded as somehow more authentic, uh, worthy of our admiration, uh, genuinely popular, and often uh, described as not nationalist. Uh, and then the the kind of official story of Saad Zakhlul, the WEFT, uh, their efforts to uh, plead Egypt's case uh, for independence at Versailles, uh, who uh, effectively co-opt that popular movement and then uh, managed to retroactively kind of re-narrate it as all part of one thing. Part of the basis of uh, of that argument is a claim that in its rural dimensions, what's happening in 1919 is not about nationalism. It's actually about the hardship that peasants and other people experienced during the war.
0: If you stuck with us this far, your spidey senses might be tingling right now, sensing the presence of a familiar feature in this kind of argument, economism, or the idea that Egyptians are driven solely by material needs. To this, Aaron might say,
1: Precisely. So part of the reason for ending the book in 1919 in this way is to say that If one sees that over the period of the 37 years before 1919, one of the most consistent features of British rule is to claim that all Egyptians can do is respond in some kind of slightly more than animalistic way to economic circumstances, then a narrative that uh, basically suggests that the the popular dimensions of the insurgency in 1919 are a reaction against economic hardship, uh, starts to look very much like what the British have been claiming all along. And so part of what the, the sort of last chunk of the book is doing is to provide um, a longer genealogy of the kinds of articulations between a whole variety of different social constituencies that had actually been forming for more than a decade uh, prior to 1919. And so there is this moment, uh, right? And here we are on the Ottoman History Podcast, uh, the kind of most authentically Ottoman moment in the book uh, deals with what happens in Egypt, um, partly in the aftermath of the Young Turk Revolt, um, where It's not that people in Egypt in this moment are demanding that the Ottoman constitution apply to them, but they see this as a moment of unfolding global revolutions of which the Ottoman revolution is the most immediately important to them. And they take this as a basis to start mobilizing in new ways as well. Uh, And there is between the kind of onset of the financial crisis in 1907, and the beginning of 1910, at which point the British cracked down in a very aggressive way, uh, a moment of really extraordinary expansion in the range and diversity of political activism. This entails a huge strike wave, a whole variety of new political organizations, student groups that are doing exciting new uh, things, and crucially, a kind of rethinking on the on the part of the elite, effendi nationalist leadership of what those relationships can look like, and as I understand it, this is a kind of reconciliation from, uh, from two sides. So on the one hand, you have working groups who have been using techniques like the strike largely to leverage material demands until this point, uh, who in their practices, both in their organizational practices and the kinds of demands that they're making, actually start to rethink the strike in the union uh, as vehicles for overtly political demands and it's quite striking also that um, when they organize themselves particularly in the aftermath of um, the young Turk revolt you often see them basically writing constitutions in miniature for themselves and kind of practicing uh, constitutional self-governance at the level of like unions of cab drivers and students and uh, workers on the other hand the uh, the people who are writing in the nationalist press and and running the the major nationalist political parties uh, really start to think through both the the possibilities of mobilizing mass popular support for their movements, and on a more theoretical level, a kind of argument that um, the structural relationship between a colonized territory like Egypt and, uh, and Britain is meaningfully connected to or even analogous to class relations around which forms of labor militancy have been organized. And and so part of the way that this relates then to the question of 1919, and I think I should probably stop here, is that this means that there are always kind of multiple um, contradictory tendencies contained within the possibility of, of nationalism. So on the one hand, this moment of uh, a kind of growing mass movement for popular self-determination that really gets going in 1908, 1909, is articulating those demands through and in connection with the the, the vehicle of a, an imagined independent national state, um, and so sees the connections between international inequality and inequality within nations as a basis for a kind of increasingly radical egalitarian politics. Uh, On the other hand, uh, that articulation um, can point in another direction and uh, and frequently in the aftermath of these crackdowns, this is what kind of comes to predominate. And in this version of things, the the kind of entanglements between the economic and the political uh, actually mean that under conditions of increasing coercion under various constraints that a an enlightened nationalist leadership uh, can basically push for a managerial project of national capital formation as the foremost priority to which all actors in the country will then need to conform and adjust their actions and so kind of multiple times we see these Uh, competing possibilities in tension with each other. So we can think about 1919 as a moment in which both of them are again up for grabs. um, And again, the kind of resolution that the British end up imposing in the early 1920s makes it much easier for the elite managerial version of things to predominate for at least a while again.
0: It's somewhat common today, at least among scholars of the Middle East, to critique the nation-state as a particularly violent, exclusive, and exclusionary way of organizing our shared human existence on this globe. What Aaron's story opens up is a world that we have lost, in which the nation-state, sovereign within a particular territory, looks like a horizon for justice and emancipation. It bears remembering, in other words, that all of those who believed so fiercely in Egyptian and other forms of nationalism weren't stooges duped by the power of an ideology that we are now enlightened enough to see through. They were instead drawing on some of the real possibilities of the nation form, to tie the management of material well-being to the mechanisms of national and local politics, so that people who lived in a place could have some say about how their collective life would be governed. I don't think this is an apologia for nationalism. Instead. It's a reminder not to assume, in a teleological fashion, that the violence and repression of the 20th century nation-state was somehow predestined. What this book opens up is an opportunity to understand that Egyptians and others who fought for national independence imagined different kinds of futures than those we can now see. For those who want to find out more, I encourage you to check out Aaron's book, entitled Egypt's Occupation, Colonial Economism and the Crises of Capitalism, just out from Stanford University Press. As always, you can join the Ottoman History Podcast team on Facebook, where we connect with our community of now over 35,000 listeners, and on our website, www.ottomanhistorypodcast.com. That's all for this episode. Until next time. Take care.